Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Colorado's governor rolled out an ambitious bill aiming to tackle the state's growing housing crisis by limiting municipalities' oversight of residential development in the state's most populated cities. In a home rule state, is a statewide housing shortage enough to override legal deference to municipalities' ability to govern land within their borders? Listen as shareholders Sarah Mercer and Carolyn White go over what's in the bill, the legal tangles lawmakers have to contend with, and why most municipalities in the state are pushing back. You're here with Sarah Mercer. I'm a shareholder in our state government relations group, and here with me is Carolyn White, one of our shareholders in our real estate group, also here in Denver. Um, And we're here to talk today about a bill that we have eagerly been awaiting since the governor's state of the state address when he discussed the need for the legislature to address the state's housing issue. We are here to talk about the governor's land use bill, Senate Bill 213. So Carolyn, I'm just going to, let's just dive right in. Um, What does this bill do? Well, that is a very good question because it is very um, complicated and lengthy and a little bit challenging to understand. And I'm not sure I still totally understand it. But the way that I think about this bill is sort of three buckets of things that it does. The first bucket uh, relates to overall statewide, regional, and local planning for housing needs. And it requires the state to establish some methodologies and standards, and then it requires each uh, applicable local jurisdiction to adopt a housing needs plan for how they're going to meet the housing needs that are allocated to that part of the state. That's bucket number one. Bucket number two is what I call the model slash mandatory code section. And there are four topics covered by that section, accessory dwelling units, middle housing, transit-oriented areas, and key corridors. And for those four areas, every jurisdiction that's required to comply with that section has to either adopt the state's model code or modify their own model code to come into compliance within a certain amount of time. And then the third bucket is really a miscellaneous bucket. There are a whole bunch of sort of one one-off standalone provisions at the end of the bill that deal with things like manufactured housing, water planning, and uh, planned unit developments, and other sort of very specific, narrowly targeted items. Well, let's start with that first bucket. What are some of the planning needs that the bill addresses and that the state is set to do if this bill passes? Well, one of the most interesting things about this is although it does require that the Department of Local Affairs is going to engage in this statewide planning process to figure out what are the housing needs for the state, the actual methodology that's going to be used to determine what those needs are and how to allocate those needs to each region and each locality has not yet been established. The bill really just directs DOLA to engage in this planning process to establish methodologies and then to put forth the overall planning needs of what the housing allocations are supposed to be. And then once DOLA has done that, did I say Department of Local Affairs and spell out DOLA? So once DOLA has done that, um, then each jurisdiction that's required to comply has to adopt a plan. The other thing that DOLA has to do is to tell each jurisdiction what form their plan has to take and what form their reporting under the plan has to take. So DOLA has a lot of work to do, and it's a little bit unclear exactly how those housing needs are going to be established on a statewide, regional, and local basis. Thinking about the relationship between the Department of Local Affairs, the current relationship versus what this bill is directing, I mean, I hear Department of Local Affairs and I think, oh, that's the department that has relationships with local governments and um, helps to oversee some of these 
um, issues. Is that what does that current relationship look like and how does this bill either change that or further that relationship? Yeah, such an interesting question. Well, one of the things that most people know about the Department of Local Affairs is they administer grants and provide technical assistance to local governments in a wide variety of areas. Water planning, metro districts, formation of special improvement districts, budgeting, open meetings, open records. DOLA provides technical assistance in all those areas. They have model forms and reports. Um, and they also provide grant funding in all those areas. And so in that regard, what they're going to be doing is not all that different. It's just adding some more very specific things to their role that they're going to have to be issuing technical assistance on and direct directives on. But what's different about this bill is that at the end of this process, there will come a time when all the jurisdictions have to report to the Department of Local Affairs. And if the report isn't satisfactory, according to the standards that DOLA has established, then there will be some enforcement mechanisms that DOLA will undertake. And that's a relatively new role for DOLA when it comes to land use planning. More of an oversight role. And as you said, at a certain point, potentially an enforcement role, which DOLA has not historically engaged in that kind of relationship with local governments. Certainly not in this arena, not in not as it relates to land use. So what's the timeline on that process for DOLA? Very interesting. There are a number of different deadlines in the bill, and they're sort of all over the place over the next four to five years. Um, I sort of think of it as a window. The soonest, the earliest deadline in the bill, particularly for that first bucket, is, um, excuse me, for the second bucket, is to establish some of these model codes and some of these programs by June 31st of 2024. And then jurisdictions have until December of 2024 to comply with those requirements. Um, that's a pretty short time frame, assuming that the legislature uh, adjourns on or about May 6th, right? And then um, and then Dola gets to work. They've got about 12 months to, to do a very long list of, of action items in a very short period of time. From the perspective of um, those who want to see more affordable housing in the state and believe that this bill is going to deliver that, it probably seems like it's going to take a very long time before they see any effects from that. Because if DOLA has 12 months to establish the planning and then jurisdictions have another six months to comply and then there are another round of deadlines that kick in in 25 and 26 and 27, the total impact of the bill is certainly not going to be felt for probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five years. The opposite of that argument is sort of as, as state government operates, that's actually a pretty fast timeline. And to think about all of the things that DOLA has to do in 12 months, it's a lot. So for those who really want to see immediate action on housing and think this is going to deliver it, it probably seems like too long. But if I'm the person at DOLA in charge of getting all this done, I probably think I don't have enough time. In terms of the deliverables that the Department of Local Affairs has to deliver, I counted somewhere between 10 and 15 deliverables that are due from the Department of Local Affairs in the next 12 to 18 months. And these are deliverables that if a local government were undertaking, for example, a new code section, it would take the local government about 12 to 18 months to do one of those things. So it, that's what I mean when I say they have an awful lot on their plate. And although they are traditionally known for providing technical assistance and, and model ordinances and so on, this is really like quadrupling or tentupling their workload in a very short time. It reminds me um, of, of a potentially, though more narrow example, but potentially analogous, which is uh, last year we saw the legislature pass a bill around green building codes and requiring the Colorado Energy Office to convene a working group and pass model 
building and other development codes that were more sustainable and environmentally friendly. Mm. That process has been extraordinarily fast. Since the legislature adjourned last year, they have already convened those groups and have voted on these model codes um, already. So, you know, potentially uh, that's something that the, that DOLA may be looking at or the governor's office may be looking at and saying, hey, we've got a we, we have a blueprint for what that can look like and how fast it can happen. I'm interested in moving into a little bit more of the substance of the that second bucket, the model or mandatory codes that this bill requires. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, in a little more detail, about those four areas that you, you initially mentioned? Certainly. Um, probably one of the most concrete that's the easiest to wrap your mind around is the accessory dwelling units, because that's been a topic of conversation in, in the headlines, particularly in the Denver metro area for the last several years, as a way to begin to densify existing urbanized areas while at the same time providing opportunities for people to have their family live close by, maybe the mother-in-law apartment concept kind of thing. Um, what this bill would do was say, it says here are five or six requirements that every jurisdiction has to adopt related to accessory dwelling units. And you can either amend your own codes to comply with those, or you can adopt the DOLA model code, which will include those things and theoretically potentially could include other things. And when I say minimum standards, it would be something like um, you, uh, you cannot require additional parking, off-street parking, for accessory dwelling units under most circumstances, and that accessory dwelling units must be allowed as a use by right in every zone district where single-family detached housing is allowed as a use by right. So the idea is to make it easier for accessory dwelling units to be built as one of the many ways to provide greater affordable housing. But probably the most impactful item in this and in all four of the model code sections in the bill is a requirement that approval or disapproval of accessory dwelling units can only be done by objective standards, with the idea being that it would eliminate some of the subjectivity around decision-making as it relates to accessory dwelling units. So that's the first of the four. Do you want me to talk about the other three or just one of them maybe? Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful to hear about the other three. Well, the other three are middle housing, uh, transit-oriented areas and key corridors. Middle housing refers to um, housing housing developments that have somewhere between two and six units in the same building. And typically that would be like duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes, um, some types of condominiums, you know, so it's denser than single family and um, denser than single family detached, but it's not multifamily like you think of a traditional apartment building. There's been a lot of talk in the planning literature about how the missing middle, the housing that is, you know, not single-family detached on a large lot, but not high-density multifamily, somewhere in between there is a place where there's a lot of demand in the market. It's also a place where housing can be built at a more affordable level, and the idea is to try to solve some of our housing needs by filling in this gap in the missing middle. So the bill defines middle housing as anything from two to six units, and similar to with accessory dwelling units, it says that there are certain areas where it has to be allowed by a use-by-right, it can only be approved or disapproved by objective standards. And there are a variety of restrictions on what types of design standards and height restrictions and other provisions you can put on middle housing. The idea being, again, that you should functionally treat them the same as you treat single family detached. So they cannot be, the rules around middle housing cannot be more restrictive than the rules around single family detached housing. Trying to put these alternative types of housing on a level playing field with single family detached. And it seems to me that the purpose of these provisions is to encourage and make it easier to develop 
the middle housing or accessory dwelling unit. So an accessory dwelling unit from an individual homeowner's perspective may be something that is easy to build, but you know, a homeowner themselves may choose to, but it's more likely that this middle housing is going to be built by um, a builder or a developer or somebody who has you know, purchased land for the purpose of development, but it's to create more housing supply. Am I understanding that correctly? That's exactly right. To create more housing supply without taking up more land to deliver it, right? You can fit more units of middle housing when you have two to six units per building in the same real estate geographic area that you can fit a single family detached on its own lot. So um, historically, our zoning codes have somewhat favored single family detached and it's why we have so much of it and so little of other types of housing. And so then what's the purpose of these other two areas of focus, the transit oriented development or transit oriented areas and the key corridors? Is it similar to create more density and more opportunity for more supply in those key areas that have been identified in the bill? That's exactly right. And, um, Those are a little bit more complicated to sort of wrap your mind around. It's not as specific as ADUs, but generally speaking, the model code will require um, a certain amount of minimum density within certain distances of transit-oriented areas, and there's a definition in the bill of what that is. And also that they can that new housing units at that density can only be approved or disapproved using objective standards. Those are the two most fundamental points. And the and and again, trying to put trying to put development of higher density near transit on a level playing field and make it as easy to build that as to build traditional single family detached. And then with key corridors, they're Two different kinds of key corridors in the bill. One can be just a commercial corridor and one can be mixed use or other types of corridors. Again, the idea is that um, a key corridor can be defined by whether or not there's bus transit on a key corridor. Again, within a certain distance of designated key corridors, then multifamily at higher densities needs to be a use by right and it needs to be approved using objective standards. Do these rules apply equally to every community in the whole in the state? My understanding is that the bill has sort of breaks out different communities and applies these rules differently to different kinds of communities. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. So there are the two main categories in the bill are urban municipalities, and there are two kinds of urban municipalities, tier one and tier two, based on population and proximity within a metropolitan planning organization, an MPO. Most of the cities within the Denver Metro Front Range and up and down I-25 that are along I-25 will fall into those two categories, Tier 1 and Tier 2 urban municipalities. And then there's a category called Rural Resort Job Center Municipalities. And um, the, the numbers in the bill are essentially trying to define places where there are a lot of jobs in a rural community disproportionate to the amount of housing that's available in a rural community and that that is creating a discrepancy between the housing needs and the jobs in that community. So in these rural resort job center municipalities, they also have to comply with some of the same regulations as tier one and tier two municipalities. But for the rural resort uh, municipalities, there are some, um, there's some flexibility in the bill in terms of how they comply and exactly what they have to do. There's also this whole category of non-urban municipalities, which would be all the other cities in the state that don't fall within that Tier 1 or Tier 2 urban municipality category. And there's also a whole lot of counties in the state that are not within rural resort job centers. And um, for the most part, the bill does not require them to do 
a lot of new things. The main changes there fall into the miscellaneous bucket, which is uh, everyone who's required to have a comprehensive plan has to update their comprehensive plan to include a water supply element. And there are a few other sort of miscellaneous things that relate to comprehensive planning that apply to the communities other than the urban municipalities and the rural resort job center municipalities. That, you know, leads me to think about, you know, the communities that are affected. I mean, it's no secret that there's opposition to this bill in part because, and and driven in large part, because, you know, just as we were talking about the Department of Local Affairs historically not having much of a role other than potentially some technical assistance in helping with land use planning, that land use planning has historically in our state been an issue that has been left to local governments. So this represents a real departure. From your perspective, what are the reasons that that local governments and, and communities would be um, in opposition to uh, uh, these land use rules that would apply more or less statewide rather than locally? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't normally presume to guess what the municipalities think, but there has been a lot of press coverage of, of um, you know, feedback from municipalities about how they feel about this bill, and it mostly has to do with the preemption of local control. You're absolutely right. Colorado is a very strong local control state. It's embodied in our Constitution, and for home rule municipalities, those which have adopted their own charter, they are um, allowed to deviate from state law and, in fact, be in conflict with state law and make their own rules different from state law in areas that are of local concern. So there sort of has evolved this uh, universe of things that are local concern, things that are state concern, and some things that are mixed state and local concern. If it's local, the local rules control. If it's state, the state rules control. And if it's mixed then the local and the state can coexist so long as there's no conflict. But if there is a conflict, then the state controls. And um, obviously this um, legislation and the sponsors of this legislation and the governor's office, the proponents of it, are definitely trying to position this as something of mixed state and local concern and trying to um, demonstrate that there are... um, legitimate public policy reasons why the land use issues and the housing issues that they're trying to address extend beyond municipal boundaries such that if it were ever challenged, a court would agree with them that it is a matter of mixed state and local concern. And so from the municipal perspective, this is really the state stepping into an arena that has historically been exclusive to the municipalities. For the most part, almost every court case that's ever addressed the issue has found that land use and zoning are matters of local concern. And here's the state telling the local governments how their local zoning codes have to be, and if they don't do that, preempting them with a state-driven model code, which is a dramatic departure from how the law has historically worked in Colorado. Yeah, and to what you just said, you know, there's 20 pages, the first 20 pages of the bill are legislative declaration discussing the housing crisis that we have. And, you know, whether the, ultimately I imagine a challenge would go all the way up to the Colorado Supreme Court, whether the Colorado Supreme Court would view the housing crisis and an issue around housing and policy decisions around housing as being distinct from land use and or whether they're tied together um, is something that will be very interesting to watch. I'm reminded that my recollection is correct that the last time the Colorado Supreme Court weighed in on an issue like this was around oil and gas development. Indeed. Which similarly, you know, connected to housing because housing development really moved 
towards where oil and gas development had historically been. And because of the housing needs, that created a bit of conflict between you know, communities and, and oil and gas, the oil and gas industry. So I wonder if that set of cases will, will have any bearing on, on where the, where the courts go on this, but that will be very interesting to watch for sure. Completely agree. Two things about that, um, that I want to mention. One, you mentioned the 20 pages of legislative declaration, which is maybe it's not unprecedented, but it's highly unusual. There's also a separate legislative declaration for each major section of the bill explaining how that particular section of the bill relates to the question of statewide concern, which um, I think is very unusual and I've never uh, seen before. The other thing about mixed local and state concern is that in that legislative declaration, they talk a lot about how when one jurisdiction makes certain choices about whether and how much um, new housing they allow to develop in their jurisdiction, it affects the jurisdictions around them. And the key thing about mixed local and state concern is that the legislature just saying it doesn't make it so. Um, There's a set of factors that the courts will consider in deciding if something is genuinely of state concern versus local concern or mixed. And that has to do with the impacts that the decisions of a jurisdiction might have on other jurisdictions outside their boundaries. And I think that's really what they're trying to establish here is the fact that this housing issue does not observe jurisdictional boundaries, and that's their justification for the mixed state and local concern. Speaking of broader state issues, you know, I think when thinking about housing, it's impossible not to also think about water. Um, you mentioned that, you know, in the kind of the third bucket of things that the spill does, that water is something that's sort of in that, that is in that bucket. How does, how is water, water issues and water resource allocation addressed in the spill? There is some mention of water. Um, given the scope of the bill and the hundred and some pages, it's, it's pretty modest related to the other items that are tackled in the bill. Um, there are two main requirements with water. One is that every jurisdiction that has to have a comprehensive plan has to add a water supply element into their comprehensive plan, which involves you know projecting whether or not sufficient water is available to that jurisdiction to serve the future development that is envisioned within the comprehensive plan. Um, and then there's um, a requirement that Jurisdictions prepare water audits, which is essentially where you check your system and see where there might be leaks to avoid waste and to remedy those leaks and to mitigate those leaks and to try to maximize the efficiency of the water that you have in your system. And jurisdictions that comply with the requirement to do the audits will be eligible for certain grants and technical assistance, and that will also be an additional factor for other grants that DOLA already has. They have to do the water audit. But it's really a pretty small requirement given how much we've been talking about water in the headlines um, and, and in the state for the last several years. Is there anything else in the bill? I want to talk a bit about where the bill is in the process, but from a substantive perspective, anything else we haven't covered? Um, I think the last thing I want to mention is that although there are an awful lot of things that the Department of Local Affairs is required to do, and they have all these funds identified whereby they're going to provide technical assistance and they're going to provide displacement mitigation for families that might be displaced by the development of all this new housing, they're going to provide affordability strategies. I don't see a lot of uh, obvious funding for DOLA in the bill to do all of those things, and I'm assuming that that funding is going to come through some other legislation, perhaps in the budget Um, this year, but uh, I am really curious to know what the price tag is for all this new work. It's a great segue because we should get a fiscal note soon. The bill is up in committee on April 6th, and it will have its first hearing. From a process perspective, it's been a little bit of an unusual process, although it's a really large 
bill, very long bill. There's a lot of elements to it. And so the first committee hearing, which will be before the Senate Local Government and Housing Committee, is really is just to take testimony. They've already on the calendar announced that there won't be a vote that day when the testimony is taken. It's expected to be a very long hearing. And that could be because the governor's office and the members of the Senate are interested in hearing feedback. There has been a process by which uh, feedback and potential amendment language has been solicited uh, by Majority Leader Dominic Moreno, who is one of the bill sponsors. And so it's possible that that's what the goal is, is to take all that testimony and, and try to figure out what where they might change some language before they take a vote. Because in the committee, the process for all committees is that witness testimony is taken that phase of the hearing is closed, and then amendments happen after all the testimony. So that's a natural flow for the process. But, you know, I would anticipate we're going to get a fiscal note in advance of of Thursday, April 6th, before the first committee hearing. But I also anticipate that this is going to be a bill that's going to go all the way to the end of session, and that likely is not going to um, see passage until much closer to the May 8th signing die. Well, one thing is certain, if this bill passes in anything close to its current form, it will fundamentally change how new housing is built in this state. Well, there will be more for us to talk about and to return to another podcast. Indeed. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for being here, Carolyn. And can't wait to talk with you more as we move forward in this process. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.